You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. Labor's rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday, August 14th, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, August 15th, 2021, on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and Wednesday, August 18th, on WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, we are talking to some student workers in the United Campus Workers, UCWCWA, about their efforts to organize colleges in the South. We'll be breaking down the new direction of the NLRB, getting you up to date on the latest in Southern Labor and in Huntsville. All this on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week and get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore AL. If you missed part of the show and you want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there. And we also clip segments and release them throughout the week. Week. We upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So, to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, you can go to the Valley Labor Report.transistor.fm/slash subscribe. Uh, and we've got a website where you can buy our stickers. We are all out of hats now. So, you can still go and buy our stickers, though, at the Valley Labor Report.org. And uh, we want to do, do a t shirt drop here in the future. And uh, we, we think uh, we like the idea of doing some kind of graphic tee um, with, with some sort of like labor theme. So, if you have any ideas uh, about that, then, you know, let us know. Send us a DM on Twitter or Facebook whatever uh, you think would look cool and uh, if we get any cool ideas we uh, we want to commission a local artist to do that for us and uh, so uh, so you know uh, let us know we are open to ideas I've got at least one cool idea that I'm that we're we're bouncing around right now already so but more are always welcome 
And finally, if you appreciate our work and you want to help us stay on the air, then the best thing that you can do is throw us a few dollars a month on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. As you can imagine, uh, businesses don't line up to advertise on a union talk radio show, so your support really does help us out. Uh, This week, like I said, we are talking to uh, student workers here in the South who are trying to organize a college near you. We're talking to UCW organizer Melanie Barron uh, and student worker Kyle Ashley and Haley Zarnick. Uh, we're really excited about that. We have talked to uh, student workers in the past. Uh, the most most recently, we talked to the New York University uh, grad student union uh, about their uh, fantastic contract that they just won after a uh, after a strike there in New York and so you know we're really excited to talk to folks here in the south about what they are up to uh, Melanie Kyle Haley thank y'all so much for uh, jumping on the line with us today we really appreciate it yeah thank you thank you <laughs> So uh, let's let's go. We'll just go around the room, so to speak, and have everybody introduce themselves. Uh, you know, um, Kyle, you are you're a student worker. Can you talk to us about like, uh, you know, what it is that, that you do on the campus? And and, uh, and Kyle, you and Haley both are at uh, UA, right? In Tuscaloosa. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So, what? Yeah. What kind of work do you do on campus? Because there are a lot of folks, you know, that think student worker, and it's hard for them to kind of conceptualize like what exactly a student worker does. So, like, help us figure out like what what is it kind of like a day in the life of Kyle? You know, what kind of stuff do you do for the campus? Well, I guess it depends on uh, uh, what time uh, or I've been working. Um, I've had multiple jobs on campus. Um, the one I work the most is uh, teaching assistant, um, which is mostly uh, grading quizzes, um, taking attendance, uh, having office hours, helping students. I've also worked as a um, what they call ready crew, which is just student workers uh, setting up beds and housing, moving furniture, setting up dorms. Um, so it really depends. There's, there's just a lot of diversity and kind of like what kind of jobs we're all working. Right. Right. And Haley, what about you? I am about to be in my final year at the law school. And so I actually joined the union as a supporting member around the time of their safe return UA campaign last August, um, because they were the only folks that were really putting out information related to COVID or organizing around it. Um, and then I have just recently gotten hired as a research so I have worked for the university briefly, but my time with the union started before then. Awesome! That that's really that that's really neat. We love to get a uh, love to get good people going to law school who uh, are not going to be you know fighting for the corporations and and you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few of us. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and Melanie, you're a organizer with the UCW. Like, how did you come into this work? Hey, yeah, I came into it as a grad worker myself. I was a graduate student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And the first couple of years I worked there, I was a research assistant. I hadn't heard of the union. I was just plugging away. And then um, when I started my Ph.D. program after getting my master's, I was assigned to be a teaching assistant. And I took 
a big old pay cut. And I got, I was really frustrated by the lack of training and lack of um, support that I was given um, from the university level. It's just like very much when you become a TA, it's like, all right, get on in there, teach a class, you're going to do great. (laughs) And um, so when I found out about the union, I was like, oh, duh, I want to be a part of this and I want to organize. And so I got involved. Uh, as a rank and file member organizing my coworkers into the union in Tennessee. And long story short, uh, we started expanding all across the Southeast, and I had the opportunity to be a part of that. So here I am. So tell us about, you know, what what is the... Uh, uh, what is the context for organizing at public universities in the South? Because there's some, you know, there, there are... Uh, Folks that are regular listeners listeners of the show are going to know that there are different contexts that, like, different labor laws apply to. If you're in the private sector, all across the U.S., you've got a consistent labor law. Like, you, you've got this one one framework on, under the National Labor Relations Act, and it's it's pre, it's pretty similar all across the country. Say, and then if you're a federal employee, you work for the federal government. There's a different set of there's a different set for labor law, and then. Every single state and municipality has its has the authority to create its own like set of labor law and and create its own context there. So, like, what is explain to us the context for um, organizing at a public university in the South? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, we. I can say that we're organizing unions where they really shouldn't exist. There is no clear legal framework um, in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, South Carolina, um, Virginia, uh, all these states where we have United Campus Workers, Colorado, Arizona. Um, There's so many workers that are not covered by the National Labor Relations Act and the protections there. And there's a lot of states that have no um, framework for collective bargaining with public sector workers. And so, um, you know, a lot of people think when we come around, the first question that we often get is like, oh, wait, I thought having a union was illegal. Isn't this a right to work state? Um, and so one of the things I get to tell people at the beginning is like, ah, right to work, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't organize. <laughs> um, it just is a term that's meant to scare you. And so what we do is we build organization where no organization exists. Um, and that is um, our key intervention in making improvements um, for labor law over time is if we're ever going to win collective bargaining rights, if we're ever going to have um, access to to the same kinds of legal frameworks that other workers have, um, we are going to have to have an organization instead of organizations and a movement to really fight for that. And so um, that is what we're doing. And so anyone on... The way that we set up these locals is like anyone who works on a college or university campus uh, can join. Um, people 
start paying dues as soon as they're joining. So they're part of building the organization. They're bought into the idea um, that we need a union. Um, and then we just act like a union. We don't wait for permission from the employer. We don't wait for um, a new law to pass. Um, or some major reforms. We need improvements in people's lives now, and we um, build campaigns and organize to make that happen. Yeah, um, talk to me about like what, how, how is it that they think that. Um, like unions are are illegal in in, in the context that uh, um, that they're in. I mean, because like I've I've heard that like w- when I first started doing the show, like somebody came up to me like I thought unions were illegal just in Alabama at all. Like, where do you think that misconception comes from? <laughs> Oh, no, I was just briefly going to say, I don't know specifically where it comes from, except that I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and particularly a lot of lack of transparency. Um, And I think a lack of transparency is intentional, right? And it really benefits employers. Um, I think that's something that UA specifically uses a lot to make sure that folks can organize. Um, I don't know like necessarily where folks get it specifically, but I just that it's a, a... a context in which employers are really incentivized to make sure that we don't have the right information and there's not really much to keep them from, uh, you know, either saying things that are misleading or, or making sure that folks don't get the information that they need. So that's my best guess, but Melanie may have, have other thoughts. Well, I think that's really a huge part of it is just misinformation over time building up for many decades. Um, I think, you know, the fact that laws like right to work laws exist, um, they exist to, to undermine unions, right? But they also exist to sow confusion um, and make it create the impression that nothing is allowed. So a lot of times, like, people are making that connection between right to work and union is illegal. So that's an important part of worker education in general is um, just shedding light on what those laws actually are and who they impact and why it doesn't necessarily have to impact you. Or it just changes the way you have to organize. Um, I think, too, there's a lot of other things, like when you get a job at, uh, at an employer like the University of Alabama, a lot of times they make you sign paperwork. Um, I think the paperwork usually says something like, I will not uh, do anything that is, you know, harms the United States of America. You know, they're trying to make sure that you're not a Soviet spy, I guess, on campus, dealing secrets. Um, so people sign that and think that that means that they can't be in the union. Um, and then, in general, there's this whole long history in Alabama, especially famously because of, you know, wonderful um, writers like Robin Kelly. You know, we know that there has been... Uh, there have been campaigns of terror against uh, organizing in the South and organizing, um, particularly organizing across racial lines, across class lines. Um, and so I think that the impact of that over time is that it just gets embedded in the people's psyches that this isn't something that we can do. Um, and it's ultimately rooted in fear. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison.
If you're looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334 that's 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at net. and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. Wow, folks! Hey, so uh, Haley and uh, and and Kyle and Melanie, thank, and thank y'all for uh, sticking with us. Um, so, talk to us about some of the uh, uh, some of the campaigns that y'all have. Well, actually, Melanie, uh, let's can can you talk to us about some of the campaigns that you had as an organizer you know now now you're an an organizer with UCW but as like a rank and file student worker can you talk to us about some of the things that y'all were able to accomplish at uh University of Tennessee yeah totally um so we right around the time that I got involved in the union we launched this campaign called Tennessee is not for sale which maybe some of your listeners have heard of it was this a two-year-long saga to prevent the outsourcing of facilities workers on campus. Because United Campus Workers isn't just for student workers, it's for anyone who works on campus. Faculty, staff, grad workers, um, anyone who gets a paycheck from the university can join. Um, and in, I believe it was, gosh, what is time? 2015, uh, the governor... Uh, of Tennessee at the time, Bill Haslam, who's the richest governor in the United States at the time, a billionaire, uh, he wanted to outsource facilities workers all across the state to a private company. So those are all the people that clean the buildings, um, that maintain uh, equipment, all of that kind of stuff. Um, it would have been thousands of workers just given over to a private company, getting them off the state payroll, no more um, benefits, things like that. And so um, that would have impacted hundreds and hundreds of our members. And so we launched a campaign to fight that. And we largely defeated that campaign to um, outsource for everyone all across the state, not just at UT, but also at University of Memphis, at Middle Tennessee State University, at, at all the different um, 
um, places where we had a presence, um, we were able to stop that outsourcing from happening. Um, and we did that through a number of different things, uh, a lot of on-campus action. So tons and tons of rallies on campus, going to the legislature. We have a, a super majority Republican legislature in Tennessee, which also makes people think that it's impossible to get anything done. Um, but sometimes those people really will uh, work with you on certain issues. And so we got a majority of Republicans to sign on to a letter opposing the outsourcing and delivered it to the governor's office. Um, and so through a number of different pressure tactics, we were able to make that happen. That's one of the most proud accomplishments of my life, um, honestly, was, was working on that campaign. And that's really what really got the word out to a lot of other people in the South about what we were doing and, and what we could accomplish. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the power – so I came from a uh, a, a faith tradition that is, uh, you know, that, that has that has politics that I don't ag- agree with in a lot of ways, but uh, they really place a high value on um, testimony as something that can invigorate another person's faith. And uh, I think that that is a really um, – I think that that's something that I've taken with me uh, as as an organizer um, because I I think I, I genuinely do think and that's why I'm so interested in talking to other people from all across the country that are doing this kind of work is that I think that the that that testimony you know like wh- what you just did uh, what you just talked about being able to hear about workers uh, struggling and sometimes winning. But sometimes losing, and go, but still going through that struggle, and even even with losing, realizing their power, it has the ability to to activate people, to get people to realize like their worth and their ability to uh, their ability to enact change in their lives. And I think that's that's really um, you know, I, so I I appreciate that. Uh, you know, uh, Kyle and and. Um, Kyle and Haley, what was the knowledge of that campaign kind of what got y'all into it or was it more or or uh, hearing about other victories or campaigns that got you into into uh, joining the union at UA or was it more of, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with your own conditions and just being motivated in yourself to, like, fix it? I know for me, it was definitely a little bit of both. Um, at the time that I started to learn about the union, it was last August, we were coming back to campus and the union were really the only folks that I was seeing that were organizing around COVID and trying to make sure that folks on campus were safe. And so the Safe Return UA campaign um you know, there was a there's a Facebook page. I reached out um, and I was in communication with folks from the union about COVID organizing. Um, and so it was definitely a mixture of they were out there doing the work. They were the ones that were putting out the support. And then uh, I was also really dissatisfied with the way that UA was handling it. Um, I don't know if folks know, but we actually ended up being when we opened last August, essentially the hotspot of the hotspot. We were the worst mm-hmm. college in the country when we opened as wow. far as COVID was 
concerned. And as most people know, we are also the, one of the worst nations in the world. So it was really bad. Um, and they had attempted to get us to sign this form, this acknowledgement form. Um, and the acknowledgement form, theoretically, they said, was just about us acknowledging that there was some level of risk. But <laughs> there was this language buried in it um, that sort of stood out to me as a baby law student that said, uh, I voluntarily assumed the risk associated with uh, COVID, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really stood out to me. And so that was my first introduction to the union was I, I worked with folks to write an op-ed and, and get them to change that language. Um, but we're still facing the same conditions, right? Like it still continues and, and we're facing probably another August where we're going to go back and be one of the worst campuses in the country. Um, I know that just implemented a, a mask mandate again, but it's very uncertain how long that's going to last. So essentially, yeah, I would say the campaign was really, really a big deal for me. It's where I found support. It's what brought me into the union. Um, and it, it continues to be a big deal to me. Do you think that that's going to be the biggest uh, the biggest concern for students going back? Well, sorry, we're about to come up on a break. But when we come back to the break, I want to hear what you think of what you think the biggest concern is going to be for uh, for student workers as they uh, as they start to come back to school here in a few weeks. And uh, what and, and, you know, what y'all are uh, going to be doing to uh, what y'all are planning to do to address that. So really looking forward to hearing some more from uh, Haley and Kyle and Mel with the United Campus Workers. Stay tuned. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE Local 1858, believes all workers are entitled to fairness, dignity, and respect. AFGE also knows that the best way to guarantee proper treatment is for workers to stand together, united, looking out for each other. In AFGE, we fight for workers every day to ensure a workplace that is safe and free from harassment. If you're a federal employee and want to be a part of this union to protect yourself and your fellow workers, call 256-876-4880. All power to the workers! This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. We are joined by United Campus Workers, uh, student organizers and uh, staff organizers, uh, Melanie Barron, Kyle Ashley, and Haley Zarnick. Adam, there was a couple things that you wanted to touch on about yeah, um, for for one thing, that I'm glad that Melanie talked a little bit about the Tennessee Not for Sale campaign. That's how I first uh, came across United Campus Workers. I was not familiar with them, and uh, actually saw it on labor notes, and really impressed with what they were able to do without collective bargaining agreements, without you know legal rights to strike, uh, and they still pulled it off. And I think that's huge. And those of you who are local uh, here in the Tennessee Valley, you probably are aware that uh, outsourcing and privatization of school support staff is is a big, big problem we have, uh, both at the K-12 level and at the college and university level. So many of the folks cooking food for students, cleaning uh, the hallways and dorm rooms and classrooms, uh, security guards, you name it, uh, many of these folks are outsourced through temp agencies, which means they're not paying into state retirement. They're not benefiting from state uh, health insurance programs or from any sort of due process rights that you know may be available, at least at the K-12 and community college level. So I thought that was really uh, important and very much relevant for uh, folks here locally and across the South, across the country. 
It's a massive uh, trend that we've seen, especially after the Great Recession over a decade ago is when it really picked up. And uh, something that Haley mentioned that I, I just wanted to reiterate she talked about getting involved because she was handed a document by her employer with some sketchy language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to really read whatever it is that your boss wants you to sign. Uh, because there's a reason why they want you to sign something. And so, I, I mean, it's just our habit sometimes to just sign stuff and get it out of our way, knock it off our list. But really, really read through any sort of document that your employer wants you to sign because you just don't know what you may be signing up for. Uh, And believe me, their lawyers will keep a record of it and it will be busted out if it's convenient for them. So I think that was a great lesson, Haley. Yeah, and I will add, um, they essentially talked to talked to press about that once we had started to push back on that language, and uh, they they never reached out to me directly, <laughs> but they told the press, "Oh, it wasn't supposed to be a waiver of any rights." You know, that's not really. I don't know. I haven't talked to legal. I'm not sure that that's what that's supposed to be. I'm like, no, I'm a hundred percent certain that a lawyer has looked at this form that you're making every student and employee sign. Like, I know that that's true. Oh, yeah. um, but it was just, it was really interesting how they were to that. They did eventually change the language, but I never heard from them directly. Right. Right. Well, that yeah, I mean that's that's awesome. And and you know, of course, the the employer wherever they can get away with it, uh, they do not want to give a win publicly to the union. They're never going to admit that it was your pressure, um, especially when when we're in a uh, in a context like Alabama where there aren't any like collective bargaining stuff set up for public employees. Um, you know, they they're, they're going to try everything that they can do to to keep people, keeps workers from uh, realizing that they have the power and that they can change things. But I think that, you know, the presentation of the facts and the timeline, uh, is it's pretty obvious what the catalyst was for the change. Uh, you know, so, Kyle, what do you think the... Um, you know, we were talking about the uh, uh, how UA was one of the vectors for transmission last year, and and there's there's some worry about uh, COVID going into this this year. Do you feel like that's going to be one of the biggest things on the mind of student workers as they come back uh, to the classroom, or um, do you think it's going to be some other stuff like pay and benefits and things like that? Well, I think COVID will be a big one. Um, if you look around state numbers, um, we're on pace to break uh, the previous record for COVID cases per day. Um, we're at January levels right now. Um, and uh, not to mention that move-in started last week with uh, sororities and, and Rush. Um, and that's just a prime opportunity uh, for, for spread. You have parents, you have students from all over the country and all over Alabama. Um, there's also, yeah, I mean, issues with 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 pay and, and, and health care. Um, you know, we're starting a campaign, um, which was our first campaign before uh, we had to switch gears because of COVID, um, about um, uh, greater uh, access to healthcare for for workers around campus, um, especially like adjunct uh, faculty. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's 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 tons of things coming down the pipeline, um, and each one of these things is complicated by COVID. Um, Right. Like, yeah. Uh, so um, I would say, yes, COVID is, is probably the biggest thing, but also just the the side effects of COVID, like the complications that are brought around with COVID. 
What do you think? Uh, so you know, as much as as much as you can say, what are the the plans of uh, the UCW down at UA to uh, to attack these issues? You know, COVID, the pay, um, and everything. You know, like what are you know uh, wh- what's the plan going forward? Um. So for for us, um, we uh, one of our strongest campaigns uh, originally was was safe return. Um, and so, uh, perhaps, uh, there is a little bit of return to that. Um, I think what most, uh, faculty workers are really concerned about though, is, um, like lack of transparency, uh, from faculty, especially, uh, regarding to forms of classes, like there's, um, in-person classes and, but there is kind of like this, this, um, notion going around that you should be ready just in case uh, you have to switch to a visual format. But that takes a lot of work, a lot of labor, a lot of effort. Right. Um, and so I, I guess the first steps is just demanding kind of transparency on what the semester is intended to look like and, and uh, what exactly is expected um, and what they want um, and whether that is feasible or fair to, to workers around campus. Yeah, Adam, I th- you had a question for them uh, about that, didn't you? Well, yeah, I just wanted to see if you guys uh, and whoever feels best to answer this, go ahead. But I just wanted to learn a little bit more about UCW in Alabama. Uh, obviously, we know you guys are working hard in Tuscaloosa at the University of Alabama. But do y'all, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable sharing, do y'all have a presence in other places in Alabama, other colleges and universities? and uh, just you know, kind of tell us a little bit about what's what's UCW's plans moving forward to really build worker power here in the state of Alabama. I'm happy to jump in here. Um, so yeah, we have acting committees at UI Tuscaloosa and now also at the at Auburn University. Um, and at Auburn University, the first campaign there is really a push for fifteen dollars an hour. And so we're talking to as many uh, staff and other workers on campus. uh, We're we're launching a postcard campaign. So we're working to get a majority of staff to sign on to a a pledge card that says they support $15 an hour. And we're moving, we'll be um, delivering that to the administration once we hit that target. So um, just organizing, organizing, organizing around that. Um, We have a couple of committees in development that are not yet public at different universities in Alabama. So if that if you're listening and you think, wow, I would love to have a union on my campus, we want to talk to you. And the way to really get started is to you know, reach out and talk, but also start thinking about who are the other coworkers that you know that would be down to do something like this and start building a committee. Um, that's where all this comes from is like just workers building up committees and, and growing those committees as much as you can, starting with personal networks and then going through and um, getting really systematic about going bigger um, once you've got your feet underneath you. So that's what we're working on in several different places and that's what we've got active in public and in Tuscaloosa and Auburn right now. 
When we talk to other uh, uh, union organizers, that's one of the first things that they say as well is, you know, like uh, when presented with, with like, I want to start a union, where do I need, what, what do I need to do? What are the first steps? The first step is always, uh, well, you know, talk to your coworkers. <laughs> and that's, you know, that, that's a pretty kind of basic thing, but uh, that it really is important to, uh, to be connected to your fellow workers, to understand their needs and concerns and what is going to motivate them maybe what's not going to motivate them and um and and uh try to answer their needs and in conjunction with answering your own needs as a as a worker organizer and uh, as an external organizer obviously it's important to center the uh, uh the needs of, of of the actual folks that you're trying to organize and uh so that's um that's always good advice. That, that that's always good when I hear folks uh, reiterate that, and and that kind of uh, beats in that. Yeah, this is a this is an important thing. That you know, the having the conversations, having those having those relationships. You can't have a union without it. Yeah, I think that's just so exciting to hear that there is such a, a a real need for organizing on college and university campuses here in Alabama. Uh, and we have a whole lot right here in our listening uh, FM listening area, UAH, mm-hmm. Alabama A&M, uh, Drake State, Calhoun Community College, uh, University of North Alabama. There are thousands of workers, both professors uh, and other teachers and other support staff workers who really, really could benefit from some organizing. Uh, they need that. And I think it's uh, really exciting to hear that United Campus Workers is here in Alabama. They are doing some good work and building the program. So that's awesome. Yep. Melanie, to, uh, to wrap us up, where can people find UCW? So we are on all social media, obviously, so Facebook, Twitter, UCWAL. And then you can go to UCWAL.org. Um, you can also learn more about United Campus Workers across the country by visiting unitedcampusworkers.org. Thanks, Melanie. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hey, you listen to conservative talk radio all week. Why don't you try something different for a change? The Majority Report with Sam Cedar is a five-time award-winning daily left-wing political talk show. We go live every weekday at 11 a.m. Central Time on our YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for The Majority Report. We talk about the news. We take libertarian callers. We have debates. We interview guests on topics ranging from the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, child poverty, capitalism, the intellectual dark web, and more. And that's all just within the last month. If you want to hear what smart, progressive political talk that is occasionally amusing sounds like, then you need to tune in. And you're always welcome to call in if you want to hear the correct opinion on any given topic. I will give it to you. Tune in to the Majority Report at 11 a.m. Central Time on YouTube or later wherever you get your podcasts. Jacob Morris.
Madison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. Uh, we just wrapped up an interview with some folks in the United Campus Workers. If you want to see that interview, then uh, you should subscribe to us on YouTube, subscribe to us on your listening platform of choice, and uh, that'll be up as a clip and as a podcast in the coming weeks. So we are going to jump right into what happened in the last couple of weeks in Southern Labor because there's uh, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. We've got to unite as workers and demand the respect we deserve from the boss. You and I should go on strike. the South in the labor movement, courtesy of Jonah Furman. You can find out what happened in the rest of Southern labor on his Substack, Who Gets the Bird.substack.com. We're going to jump right into new organizing. Uh, 93 aircraft mechanics at Fort Hood, Texas are unionizing with the machinists. We love the machinists around here, don't we, folks? 55 construction workers for Omni Excavators, plus 52 construction workers. Workers for stealth construction in the metro D.C. area are organizing with Laborers Local 11. 32 workers for Lattimore Materials at a limestone quarry in Stringtown, Oklahoma, which is located on Reba McIntyre Road. Uh, Jonah thinks it's very important that readers know that. They are organizing with the Operating Engineers Local 627. Uh, 19 security guards at the Sanderson Farms Poultry Plant in Palestine, Texas, are joining SPFPA. 11 stationary engineers at a LSU health facility in New Orleans are unionizing with Plumbers Local 60. 74 mechanics and clerks in Jacksonville, North Carolina for Vertex Aerospace are organizing with The Machinists. 70 drivers for U.S. Foods out of Morgantown, North Carolina are unionizing with Teamsters Local 391 and 5. U.S. Foods drivers based in Charlotte, North Carolina, are joining Teamsters Local 509. We love to see uh, organizing in North Carolina. North Carolina actually has the lowest union density rate in the entire United States. So uh, we love seeing workers organize there, that's for sure. There were a few NLRB wins. I think that this one you can you could count as an NLRB win, which is that uh, an NLRB agent recommended the RWDSU election in Bessemer, Alabama, be rerun after finding that. Amazon violated labor law and installed a mailbox at the warehouse in contravention to the election agreement. It's just a recommendation and can and will be appealed by the company. Plus, uh, it has to be approved by higher-ups at the board, but observers say a rerun is likely if the union pursues it. Uh, 22 security guards at the Federal Trade Commission in D.C. voted 10-0 to to join the SPFPA and three building engineers at uh, 950 L'Enfant Plaza Southwest 
uh, in D.C. voted unanimously to join Operating Engineers Local 99. There were a few losses, decertification, and raids first. There were 41 security guards at NASA's Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. They voted 18-0 to to drop SPFPA Local 129. 110 drivers and mechanics for garden trucking in Covington, Virginia, voted 30 to 65 against joining the Association of Western Pulp and Paper Workers. LES LEOSU-PBA is raiding 20 SPFPA guards in DC and SPFPA is raiding a unit unit of 10 parking guards parking garage security guards at a high-rise in Arlington, Virginia, currently represented by LEOSU-PBA. It looks like those two unions, not a fan of each other. That's what I'm gathering. And uh, this uh, this one kind of strikes me as a surprise because generally you don't see raids outside of security guard unions. Um, UFCW Local 1996 appears to have filed a raid to raid a unit of 47 workers at Pepsi in Macon, Georgia, currently represented by the Teamsters Local 528. Uh, you know there can be there can be legitimate reasons to want to change your representation, and not, obviously uh, not not able to comment on the kind of intricacies and minutia of what's going on at that local. But uh, hopefully, hopefully there's not like nasty politicking going on there. Uh, for strikes and bargaining. The mainstream media broke its month long, months-long silence on the coal miner strike at Warrior Met in Brookwood, Alabama, with ABC airing a segment on the fight. That's really cool. Jacobin also published an overview of the strike as a thousand miners, or as more than a thousand miners and supporters rallied in Brookwood. In labor notes, Luis Felice Leon, a friend of the show, has another piece on the UMWA strike at Warrior Met. Uh, the union p- has pointed out that, and we mentioned this before, that that through the contract concessions over the past five years, the workers have functionally given the company $1.1 billion in pay, benefits, time off, and so forth. It's just amazing. It's insane. Absolutely insane. 20 barbers at Fort Lee, Virginia are still on strike with laborers local 572 since the 4th of July as contractor Sheffield cut their pay while raising haircut prices. If this strike continues, like I want to talk to these guys. You don't often see barbers uh, uh, going on strike. That's something interesting. In what could be considered the first K-12 job action of the new school year, some teachers in East Baton Rouge Louisiana, LA, uh, Louisiana refused to attend in-person professional development sessions due to the spread of the Delta COVID variant. In Orange County, Florida, 750 more teachers resigned in the past school year than in and the previous one, and more continue to leave as COVID spreads, and the union and the district are at an impasse in bargaining over a pay dispute. I mean... You know, we're all the time talking about a teacher shortage, teacher shortage, teacher shortage. And uh, there's a pretty simple way to fix that, folks. Pretty simple way. Uh, you pay the teachers more and you give them a safe working environment. It is not that difficult. 
in the world of vaccine mandates, there is there's just a lot going on. Um, unions from the firefighters, the postal workers, and the American Federation of Teachers initially came out against mandates, but then uh, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, signaled some openness, and eventually the AFT has come out in favor of vaccine mandates in the schools. So uh, there's going to be some, you know, there, there's a lot of conflict there that uh, a lot of people that that are very very pro vaccine, um, including myself. There's there's some amount of conflict uh, between, you know, the good of vaccinations and doing things that are going to incentivize people to get vaccinations and giving the boss more power. You know, that is that's something that unionists are loath to do under any circumstances. And uh, like some folks on Twitter have pointed out, you know, they unions, I don't think should come at the bargaining table willing to concede to vaccine mandates uh, right off the bat, I think they should be. I think they should be asking for something in return for it. Anytime that you give the boss anything, uh, you've got to get something for it. Absolutely, have to get something for it. In Nashville, uh, Musicians Local 257 has ratified a contract that includes a pay cut, then a reversal of that pay cut, and then an increase. Which theoretically, I'm not sure like what all that, but it, but ultimately, it looks like they got a pay raise uh, that should keep them on pace with pre-pandemic wage gains with help from a venue bailout. So that's good to hear. Kroger workers with UFCW Local 400 in Virginia are protesting the company's efforts to switch from a jointly managed health plan to a management-only health plan and uh, predictably and the predictably worse health care that would entail. The Morgantown, West Virginia, Milan pharmaceutical plant has officially closed as of July 31st, turning 1,400 jobs, 800 of which were steelworkers' local 8957 union jobs into just 70 as workers decommission the plant. That's um, a disgrace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, teachers and principals in Florida got a $1,000 bonus check. And while that might seem like a meager premium for exposing yourself to COVID, uh, thousands of K-12 workers didn't even get that. So now the unions are negotiating for those who were left out. Uh, There is some interesting internal union politics, and this is one that I'm really excited for. The IFPTE has a new president, Matthew Biggs, and a new international secretary-treasurer, Gay Henson. Uh, Longtime listeners of the show may remember Gay Henson as the president of the Valleywide TVA Engineering Association, who we talked to about this time last year a few times during the uh, TVA outsourcing fight where they were trying to contract out to a foreign company, IT jobs that TVA management admitted there were no job performance issues and there was no guarantee or even a proposal to save taxpayer dollars through this outsourcing deal that they were trying to go through. Gay Henson and others fought vigorously against that and they won. 
very excited for my sister Gay Henson uh, out of uh, Tennessee to uh, be the international president for IFPTE. Really looking forward to seeing what she does. Uh, in politics and legislation, the Texas AFL-CIO is endorsing a series of recommendations to transition to a clean energy economy. We aren't quite there yet, but uh, this is yet another serious crack in the idea that fossil fuel worker organizations will never support a Green New Deal or something like it. And finally, the state of Virginia is trying to claw back millions paid out in unemployment benefits to thousands of school bus drivers across the state due to a loophole in state law about 10-month employees getting those sorts of benefits, and the Virginia Education Association is representing the drivers in the dispute, which is a smart move as these drivers may soon have collective bargaining rights for the first time under the new state labor law reform in Virginia. Folks, that's all we got for what happened last two weeks in Southern Labor. We'll be right back with some local updates. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256 876 4880. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. All power to the working class. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. Adam, uh, talk to us about what's been going on here in Huntsville and Alabama. All right. Good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. And whether you are across the Tennessee Valley here locally or out there in cyberspace, we do appreciate that. Uh, I want to start with a few events happening locally. Uh, Sluice Fest is happening this weekend, starting today, August 14th, 4 p.m., running through 1 a.m. And tomorrow, August 15th, 4 p.m. through midnight, that is taking place at Sidetracks Music Hall. Uh, and we wanted to shout that out because our, our friends Obed Edom will be playing at this festival. So that's a cool event. Uh, if you're interested in kind of the underground music scene here locally, uh, definitely check out our brothers in Obed Edom. Uh, the North Alabama School for Organizers is hosting their automotive free clinic on Saturday, August 21st from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the New Futurist Homeless Shelter. We've discussed that before because it's such a great uh, example of mutual aid in practice. They will be offering oil changes, light repairs, and maintenance education uh, geared towards the poor and to the homeless. And they are still uh, certainly in need of volunteers and donations. Uh, Last I checked, I think they were really hoping some folks with Spanish language skills could help them out. So, Uh, Definitely look them up, North Alabama School for Organizers. We got a chance to collaborate with them this week and uh, broadcast their fireside chat with Sister Catherine Herford 
I thought it was very informative and, and really dig what they're up to. Uh, the United Women of Color actually had a Unity Festival planned for Sunday, August 22nd, and that has been postponed. Wanted to let y'all know that since we have plugged it on the show. Uh, but also next weekend, the League of Women Voters are commemorating the 101st anniversary of women's suffrage with a special event at Burrett on the Mountain. And that is Saturday, August 21st, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., that would be a great time to take your kids up there, uh, learn a little history and have some fun, enjoy the views. Wanted to uh, remind folks that on August 24th, there will be a rally against political corruption in Montgomery, Alabama, with the Libertarian Party and the infamous Vermin Supreme. Uh, if you're not familiar with Vermin Supreme, Google him. Uh, he is an interesting character. Uh, I've kind of dig what he's doing uh he uses a lot of political theater to make his points he's been operating inside the libertarian party now i typically associate libertarians with a uh, very far right free market you know capitalism type of policies but vermin's taking a different stand uh, inside the libertarians and i think that's interesting and uh the main uh focus of this rally and the reason they're doing this is about ballot access and really trying to challenge this two-party duopoly that we have in this country, but especially in Alabama, where ballot laws make it extremely hard for independent and third-party candidates to actually have a chance at an election. And we also have uh, a couple of other things that's been happening here locally. Uh, And the census, of course, has come out. And it's going to take some time to really review the census results and see what's going on with that. Uh, but that's going to come in, come in handy here in just a sec. So in Huntsville, locally, uh, of course, there are redistricting conversations that are connected to the census results. And I've seen some conversations around maybe even adding districts in Huntsville. Uh, Huntsville was just named the biggest city in the state, finally surpassing Birmingham, and those of you who are local may know that there are only five city districts. So five districts, uh, that means five city council members, five school board members for a large and growing city. So there's some conversations around that, and there will be a lot of public hearings over the next couple months. I uh, definitely encourage you to get plugged in there and keep your eye on that because it will be very relevant for politics over the next decade. Also in Huntsville news, uh, the coming out of this Thursday city council meeting, the city of Huntsville has announced that moving forward, police-involved shootings will now be investigated by the state of Alabama. That seems like something that would have already been in place. Uh, but as we have learned, especially over the past you know 14 months or so, we have some real serious problems with our criminal justice system locally here in Huntsville. Um, And this is coming mostly in response to the Officer William Darby shooting. Uh, Just a reminder, if you forgot about that case, this was a situation where a police officer murdered a civilian who had called the police for help. He was suicidal. Uh, William Darby busted in after two seasoned officers were already on the scene, handling the scene, de-escalating the scene. Uh, And, you know, maybe the most shocking piece to all this beyond the fact that a murder was committed is that the local district attorney brought him up on charges a jury 
saw fit to convict him on these charges, and yet the Huntsville police chief and the Huntsville mayor uh, continued, even after a guilty verdict, to uh, beat the drum that he was just following policy and, you know, that he did nothing wrong. It's wild. Um, uh, yeah, if you want some more context on that case, uh, go back and check out Catherine Herford's talk that we uh, sort of cross-promoted this past Wednesday. She gave a lot of background about that case that really uh, makes it even all the more disturbing. Now, at the state level, uh, something that's kind of interesting that's happened this week is that the State Board of Education has passed a so-called Intellectual Freedom Resolution uh, that just so happens to include some punitive measures towards teachers who uh, they believe to be in violation of this resolution. And really what this is about is pandering to the anti-critical race theory hysteria that has been pushed by right-wing media and promoted by groups like the Alabama Tea Party, uh, which in this case uh, specifically called the Eagle Forum. And they actually put out a letter this week and mentioned my name in that letter uh, as one of the certified educators in Alabama who was willing to take the Howard's End Education Project's pledge to teach the truth. Uh, And just... I got to say this, folks, if the truth looks like misinformation, that's your problem. Perhaps you've been misinformed. So uh, that kind of pandering will continue. It appears to uh, be holding a little bit stronger than maybe the last few controversies around Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. Uh, Danny Crawford, the state rep for House District 5, which... Athens and Limestone County is part of House District 5. So right here in the station, our state representative has already pre-filed legislation about critical race theory. Uh, You know, leave it to the Alabama GOP to fight imaginary battles that really and try to solve problems that don't even exist. Uh, But the sad thing to me is that it's going to intimidate teachers, especially in the social sciences and literature, fine arts. It's going to intimidate them and try to discourage honest, authentic conversations about our country's history and about the roles in which race has always played a role in our country's history and the way it still exists today. If you want to be a responsible citizen and a responsible member of your community, part of that is being able to know and understand the past so that you can analyze the present to build a better future and that is under attack in this state so while the state board is worrying about that uh districts across the tennessee valley and all over alabama are having to implement masking policies as covid runs wild in our school buildings and of course throughout our communities especially with the delta variant uh just this morning i I was on the news and saw uh in florida uh, Broward County, they, you know, there's a lot going on there where multiple teachers have died as they are getting ready to start school. And, you know, it's just sad. That's the priority of some of our uh, state leaders in education. And uh, in response to these masking updates, we got to say there's some folks showing out at local school board, school board meetings. Lots of, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say it, affluent, white soccer mom types are showing up to school board meetings and totally showing their butt and uh, acting wild and unhinged because little Johnny might have to wear a piece of fabric on their face. Interesting. And on that note, 
One in five Alabama children live below the poverty line, according to that new census data. One in five. Mm. Overall, about 15% or more of Alabamians live beneath the poverty line. And of course, no surprise, there are significant disparities along race and gender lines. So while our educator leaders, quote unquote, uh, try to make it harder to teach the truth about our history, our children are suffering in poverty. They are suffering from COVID and all of the disruption that has caused in our society. They're struggling with trauma. Our educators are dealing with, you know, underfunding, lack of respect, lack of training and resources, class sizes that are too high, lack of mental health services for their students and for themselves. It's quite shameful to see the priorities. And uh, I'm disappointed that, there has not been a lot of pushback from the education community about this. Uh, to me, this is a, a matter of academic freedom. And I think back to some of the, the lessons that I taught in my own classroom. And, you know, could I do those today? Or if I did those, what would happen? Obviously, I've already been named by the Eagle Forum. And, of course, they made sure to name... Huntsville City Schools for the audacity to have something called the No Place for Hate program. Hmm. How how radical of them to say that their schools would be no place for hate. So that's all I got for local and state updates. I mean, that that juxtaposition, and I'm sure that was on purpose, but between like all these people... Uh, being irate and showing up to city council meetings because their children, uh, uh, you know, might have to wear masks. And, you know, like, look, I mean, I can it. I mean, it's one thing to go and register your displeasure about that policy. And, and then that's fine. And I can understand the argument that it's uh, that, you know, there there are, you know, there uh, children are not really affected or are uh, by and large, you know, statistically speaking, obviously we can talk about anecdotes and there, there is that you can pull one, uh, one instance of anything happening, but by and large children haven't been affected by the alpha variant, the wild type COVID. Uh, there are reports suggesting that the Delta variant may be a little bit more, uh, detrimental to children, but it's, but that's not been confirmed. There hasn't been any like peer-reviewed research that I've seen on that and so like I can understand the the argument that like look we need to get all the adults in the building vaccinated and then things should be back to normal and that's like that's how I would prefer because obviously having a mask in schools for children to wear that's going to be some amount of detriment to their learning experience and their social experience and it's not going to be as fun and like that's it's it's not right I understand that right I don't know that I agree with that it's easy uh, to live through a pandemic right right and so I you know I understand that but to get so irate about that of all things and like go to city council meeting after city council meeting or school board meeting after school board meeting and like that is the only thing that you're concerned about and then at those meetings like giving some impassioned speech about how the vaccine is like you know going to turn us into lizard people or make us magnetic or something like I just can't like the misinformation is so insane and the juxtaposition uh of you know the the masks are tyranny 
to one in five Alabamian children are living in poverty. Like, we have real issues that children are facing in this state. And frankly, uh, you know, wearing a mask in school is like not even, uh, it doesn't seem to me to like crack the top five. You know, like register your displeasure if you want about that. But like, also, if you're actually concerned about children, then it's like, let's think about how we can make children's lives in Alabama better. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ways. There are a lot of things that, that Alabama can do better to make their children's, uh, the, the, to make our children's lives better. And having a mask or not in schools is like not the thing that, is that 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 uh, people should be getting so up in arms about like it's it's like uh, you know I mean we should be expanding Medicaid we should be making sure that uh, the parents are making enough money to support their children we should be making sure that the jobs that come here are good paying jobs with good benefits I mean the it's it's just so like we the, should have collective bargaining rights for educators I mean the and, and that would be something in this state if the educators actually had collective bargaining and which we discussed with the campus workers right. technically there's nothing legally saying they can't do it but it's obviously not a, a practice here and you know what masking policies vaccine policies those are issues that could be bargained. Uh, if we had collective bargaining for educators, but sure. that is not the situation, and it's really unfortunate because in district after district, the voices of rank and file teachers and rank and file support staff are not honored. They're not, you know, they're not considered. Um, and so I think that's a big part of the problem too: is that the people who actually do the work usually have the least amount of input, and, and that's, you know, true in education, yep. and that's true in sector after sector. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256 286 3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Alabama's 
only Union Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, but really quick before we uh, before we go to the caller, I want to make sure that people uh, hear about this because it's an, an important uh, thing that's happened in our country. The, uh, the Biden administration just uh, was able to get through their appointment of the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzza. Uh, she was confirmed to the general counsel along party lines. Not a single Republican voted for her, uh, which is insane. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, look, not we're obviously we talk bad about Democrats, but, you know, like there's a difference, right? There's a difference. Uh, and so she just released the, uh, her memo um, talking about where the, the direction and the types of cases that she wants to take up, that she wants the National Labor Relations Board to take up and overturn. And uh, we had, maybe about this time last year again, we had a conversation with Paul Prescott. Uh, he is with the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. He wrote an article for Labor Notes about uh, some of the Trump administration's National Labor Relations Board, some of their rulings that were really anti-worker and some of the precedents that they set that were really anti-worker. So I would direct you to that article that he wrote, that video that we did with him, and uh, Abruzza's uh, memo as newly confirmed general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, has laid out things that she is going to be looking to overturn, which is most of the Trump-era decisions, and as well as she is taking a look at some long-dormant cases, uh, namely including the Joy Silk Doctrine, uh, which is really, really interesting. I want to direct everybody to uh, Brandon Magner's Substack, uh, Labor Law Light, that's spelled L-I-T-E, on Substack uh, because he really dives deep into this and it, it's it's really interesting. So just just a super quick overview, uh, back, dating back to 1949, Joy Silk held that this is the doctrine, the Joy Silk doctrine held that if an employer was presented with a union's request for recognition and the employer did not possess a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status when it refused to recognize the union, an employer was said to have violated Section Eight A Five of the National Labor Relations Act and be ordered to bargain with the union. Uh, an employer, and and if the uh, uh, if they were granted to have a good faith doubt and then they broke the law, that was overturned and then they had to bargain with the union. And this is, this is pretty simple because currently the law just basically assumes that the union is lying and assumes that the union ha- or that the employer has a good faith doubt. And there's no reason to assume that. Um, th- there's absolutely no reason to assume that. And uh, the 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 um, punishment for breaking the law over the course of a union election is really common sense because, look, if an employer has a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status, they don't need to break the law. They just need to have an election. And that's and you can still and you can do that. And this this allows for that. But you've got to have if a union comes up to you with, uh, you know, saying that they've got a majority representation and the and they've got a you know independent party looking at the authorization cards and you don't have a good faith doubt, then you can't 
uh, force workers to go through, uh, you know, an anti-union uh, barrage of nonsense if they've already made the decision. Because ultimately, uh, unions are about worker self-organization. They're not about the bosses coming in and telling workers what they can and can't do. And uh, the New York Times, funnily enough, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, not being shills for like liberal estab- establishment, <laughs> the New York Times as an employer uh, just made the case for why this is important because uh, it was reported out by the Daily Beast that uh, they accidentally sent out one of their anti-union talking points to a union organizer for the New York Times uh, tech workers and talking about their strategy to try to break up the union. And it was clear that this was bad faith. But under current law, the Times management is allowed to barrel ahead to an election regardless of the fact that they know the union enjoys majority support, even if management's intent is solely to stall and attempt to undermine the union. Under Joy Silk, the management's lack of good faith doubt about the union's majority status means that it is required to bargain with the union regardless of whether there has been election to certify that majority. And uh, the New York Times' potential unlawful conduct in the interim is merely icing on the cake. So that's really important stuff. Check out Brandon Magner's Substack. We've got a caller on the line, Dan from Madison, wanted to talk with talk with us. Uh, Dan, how's it going, brother? Very well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the show. Uh, I've got a question for you. I have a couple of statements, all COVID-related. Sure. Uh, the illegal aliens that are coming over the border, are each one of them being tested? Uh, I I don't think so. I don't. That's not my understanding. Okay. Well, uh, you must agree with me. It's important to test each one, and they're not being tested, so that's not good. Yeah, I think I think that uh, uh, I think that as people come in to, uh, you know, I think that it, it would a- absolutely be good to uh, make sure that everybody in the country has free free testing available, uh, and and that we're doing that on a, you know, on a large basis, wide scale. Absolutely. Thank you. I think we're both in agreement on that. So my other question is, David, is the, the COVID virus, did it come from a lab in Wuhan? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, there is. There's evidence to suggest uh, that it did and it didn't. Uh, there is because the way that the my understanding and you know this isn't like really my wheelhouse, but I, I've listened to a to a few uh, you know a few podcasts about it and and some read some articles like making both cases. And my understanding is that there is there's a lot of reasons to believe that it evolved naturally in its like the the way that it's sequenced and stuff. But there's also some amount of reason to believe that it could have been manipulated in a lab uh but you know i'm not terribly sure how relevant that is uh as to like our response to it domestically i'm gonna tell you how relevant it is if it's not we need to find out if it is or is not but if it is and it's coming from their lab overseas in their country do we don't we have a national debt or something toward china don't we owe china money or something uh, there's some amount. So, you know, with the national debt, there's this idea that China, uh, that we owe China most of our debt, but actually most of our debt is owed to ourselves, uh, w- with, you know, social security or Medicare or things like that. Uh, it's actually the majority of the national debt is owed to, uh, you know, American agencies of, of some form or another. And I think, okay. uh, China owns, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's some amount of it that, that, that China does, uh, own obviously, but, but most of well, it's owned to well, us. To- Two things, and I'm going to real quickly statement that I'll hang up. Number one, first off, you need to stop spending money like it's going out of style. That's kind of stop. Number two, I believe Wuhan's involved. The lab, China, whatever we owe China, guess what, China? 
I'm wiping it off this one. I'm paying you a penny, and we're going to lay embargoes on you because no more Chinese product, American-made. You must agree with that. I love American-made products, yeah. So there you go. Shut it down, China. Shut them down. Don't own nothing. The, 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 the slate is clean. You brought the virus here. I think they did. And that's it. Uh, thanks for the call, Dan. I appreciate it. And what I'll say is that, you know, obviously uh, there there is going to be research and there should be research as to the origins of COVID-19. I think that we'll get to the bottom of that eventually. And if it uh, if, if it, it if it is determined that it came from from a lab in Wuhan, there should should be uh, some uh, there. There should absolutely be some remedy to that from the Chinese government. And I think that there will be uh, whether or not there needs to be embargo an embargo. You know, um, I'm not so sure about whether there should be an embargo or not, because I don't know how good, frankly, that would be for either economy, the the Chinese or uh, the United States. Um, and and I'm generally not in favor of embargoing other countries uh, because that is going to hurt the citizens. And I think that, you know, as workers, uh, there's more that unites me with a Chinese worker than there is with an American boss, let's say. So, you know, th- those are some things to consider. But obviously, apart from that, do I love American-made, union-made stuff? I think that that I obviously do, and I want to see more of that. And you will not, you will absolutely not see me uh, as an officer of uh, any of the labor organizations that I'm a part of, or as a uh, co-host of this radio show. You, you know, uh, create any of any merchandise or anything like that that is not American and union and union-made. All of our stuff has uh, union bugs on it, and we're very proud of that, made here in America, and. And, um, you know, I think the important thing is to make sure that workers all around the world uh, have good labor standards. And so when we create trade deals and, and things like that, we need to uh, try to raise other workers up so that American workers don't have to compete with like slave like conditions and things like that. And and so uh, so, you know, point taken. Adam. Yeah, I mean, but there's a lot of ifs in there. And obviously right. none of us have the research or ability to determine the origins of that virus. And what I'm not going to do is, OK, any sort of nationalistic uh, anti-China sentiment or revival of Cold War nonsense. Uh, because as you mentioned, as workers, we have more in common with each other than we do with either government or their bosses. Right. That is, that's a, that's a great place to end it on, folks. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report.